Hi, welcome to Two Towns Over. This show is made possible by our patrons. If you want to monetarily support the show, we're at patreon.com slash two towns over. If you can't support us financially, then you can support us algorithmically by liking, rating, and sharing. Thanks. Enjoy the show. going to run out of ways to say that no he's not i sure won't (laughs) (laughs) he's going to be depressed when we actually start recording together again and he doesn't have to say that anymore no i don't it'll be fine i have adhd i'll forget yep (laughs) (laughs) all right well then since we've already done our conversation we'll just jump right in so welcome everybody to two towns over i am father donathan i'm uh i'm you know I'm one of the little monkeys that was jumping on the bed. I'm Josh, also known as Florida Man. <laughs> Damn it. Ah, fuck. I don't give a shit. My brother yet. just bumped his head, but I'm pretty sure I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it's been a while since we've done A, an unsolved mystery, B, serial killer, C, brutal axe murders so i figured uh figured we jump into that you know concept today and uh we're going to discuss the new orleans or the axe man of new orleans or new orleans however you want to say it nolens nolens um yeah so pretty uh it's one of the more famous uh unsolved mysteries it's up there with like the Velisca axe murder and um Famous unsolved murders, he says. Uh huh. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the only one I know of for sure is the one at the Cecil where the woman either fell or was pushed out of a window and inadvertently mysteriously murdered a man and or fell on top of him. He still had his shoes <laughs> he on. He still had his shoes on. Hands in pocket. But, Poor uh, fucking guy, man. Wow. <laughs> He was what whistling, a way to go. Whistling I, a jaunty tune. I know that we said it during that episode, but like, man, just really contemplate. It's I, I have to point out, Ruben talks about this once a week. All the time. <laughs> I, I think about this often because you've all seen cartoons. You've all seen fucking, um, oh, what the fuck? Churchill? Or not Churchill. Uh... Church's chicken. Fucking um, no! What? Why did that bring the guy, the the dictator? Fucking oh, Charlie Chaplin. Thank you. Yeah. God, what the hell just happened? <laughs> um, Chaplin. You've all seen Chaplin. You've seen the the piano, the Looney Tunes, all of it, anything. Uh, an anvil, a missile, but like another person. Yeah. That's unique, at least. You know what are the. Has anyone else in history ever died like that in since humans started? Eh, probably. I don't know, man. That <laughs> seems highly specific. So, by August of 1918, the city of New Orleans was paralyzed with fear. In the dead of the night, the Axeman of New Orleans, as he came to be known, broke into a series of Italian groceries, attacking the grocers and their families. Some he left wounded, four people he left dead. The attacks were vicious. Joseph Maggio, for example, had his skull fractured with his own axe and his throat cut with a razor. His wife, Catherine, yeah, his wife, Catherine, also had her throat cut and she asphyxiated on her own blood as she bled out. God, what? (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're starting right off. Oh, yeah, trigger warning. Sorry. I was just thinking, like, Here's what happened in my head. I was thinking, weird racism for just Italian grocers? That's a very specific so thing. I mean, I, I'm probably jumping way ahead, but I have heard uh, the theory that this might have been like an Italian mob hitman. 
who used an axe as his like send a message emo. I am too naive for I did not think of this. Yeah. That's a good explanation. Thank you. Yep. That helped. But then we were. So I'm just thinking that's a very specific MO. What? And then you were talking about the way that he killed these people. And I was like, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I know it's an axe, and axe murders are always violent because axes are meant for trees, not people. <laughs> and like, but like, damn, he took the razor blade out and shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So several lethal attacks that didn't target Italians were also thought to be the work of the Axeman, although this would later to prove not to be the case. Nevertheless, New Orleans were terrified. Hey, uh, wow. New Orleans? Yeah. Yeah. Or New Orleanians. They were called that New Orleanians. People from Phoenix are called Phoenicians. (laughs) I. What is that from? Phoenicians? From. That's a people from Phoenix are called Phoenicians in that specific voice is from. Uh, is that a Bo Burnham? No, it is a Louis C.K. bit where he oh, kept yeah. saying a slur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why my first reaction was to be like, shut the fuck up. Like, just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. just like. <laughs> so uh, the press <laughs> noted that the Italian immigrant community was especially sp- fearful with panic. Yeah, they would be, wouldn't they? <laughs> like with panic stricken men staying up all night to guard their families. New Orleans superintendent of police, Frank Mooney, suspected that the murderer was a, quote, murderous degenerate who gloats over blood. Hey, friend. That was obvious right away. <laughs> So as the killer name suggests, or nickname suggests, like to the fact that one of his victims choked on her own blood, like she yeah. she she suffocated on her own blood. That's cruelty. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? That's that's cruel on purpose. I'm just you know. So as the killer's nickname suggests, up. the victims were typically struck with an axe, which you know. That's kind of on the point, well, on the that's nose. That's how an axe murderer usually yeah, does usually. things. Yeah. As the killer names, nickname suggests, the victims were usually killed with a feather. But um, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the axe frequently belonged to the victims. Um, that's... Uh, wow. Yeah, that's how it was at Velisca too. It was, it was the victim's axe that killed them. So a chisel was typically used to remove a panel from a back door of a house, and the panel was left on the front next to the door, or on the floor next to the door. The trespasser then used an axe or a straight razor to attack one or more of the residents. Robbery was not the motive for the attacks, as the criminal never took anything from the houses of his victims. This is mob shit for sure. So many people... Uh, and that's Or, or it's it, literally just a serial killer. But like... It feels it, that, mob hit. Yeah. Because serial killers often will take trophies also. Well, not necessarily. That's like a played up for the movies. Thing. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I know some of them did, obviously, but like, I don't, it's not like a universal thing for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, it comes from a lot of like Dahmer and Gein, whose whole thing. Thing. Oh, you mean the nipple belt guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some may call it a trophy. Some or might call it many trophies like put together. Dahmer, whose entire thing was trying to keep a person as a trophy. Yeah, right. he was into that, huh? Yeah. That's on some Rick James He was shit trying right to make there. a sex zombie. Yeah, that's fucked. <laughs> yeah. Man. So many people thought that the attacks were motivated by ethnicity because of the bulk of the victims of the Axemen were, like we said, Italian immigrants or Italian Americans. Now, this aspect of the crimes were, was sensationalized by many media outlets who even suggested mafia involvement in spite of the lack of evidence. Yeah. Now, because well, the well, mafia doesn't like to leave evidence. I was just going to say that just makes it easier to sensationalize it because now they're, it's a clean hit, uh-huh. you know, and now it you're not going to get people who are going to be like, oh, yeah, that's 
mob involvement because you don't talk to the fucking police about mob involvement. Not unless you want to be the next fucking Italian family. Right, like. exactly. Well, and I believe, I could be wrong here, but I read somewhere that um, the mob in America got its start in the South. That seems like a thing somehow. I don't remember the details, but it made sense to me when I heard it. Now, some crime experts have speculated that the murders were connected to sexual activity and that the killer may have been a sadist who preyed primarily on women. Criminologists Colin and Damon Wilson postulate, supported by examples where the women of the home were slain but the men were spared, that the Axeman only killed male victims when they stood in the way of his attempts to murder women. A less likely explanation is that the murderer wanted to promote jazz music by killing people. Now, we'll get to that theory in a little bit. I was going to say, I'm going to need more on that. Yeah. <laughs> So on May 23rd, 1918, while sleeping next to each other at their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets, where they opened a grocery and bar room, Italian grocery store owner Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine were attacked. They're who we talked about at the beginning. After breaking into the house, the murderer used a straight razor to slit the couple's throats. After departing, he may have used an axe to hit their heads to hide the true reason for their demise. Though he survived the attack, Joseph passed away shortly after his brothers Jake and Andrew found him. Oof. The, the murderer That's had rough. Yeah. The murderer had clearly changed into clean clothing before leaving the scene. Thus, law enforcement officers discovered his bloody clothes inside the apartment. Now, after the bodies were removed, authorities did not thoroughly examine the house. However, a short time later, a bloody razor was discovered on the lawn of a nearby property. Since the thief did not take the money or valuables that were left in the plane's sight, police ruled out robbery as the reason behind the attacks. Now, the couple's brother, Andrew Maggio, who owned a barbershop on Camp Street, was discovered to be the owner of the razor that was used to kill them. Two days before the murder, Maggio took the razor out of his store, according to his employee Esteban Torres, who also told the police that he had intended to have a nick on the blade sharpened. About two hours after the horrific attacks, mm. Maggio, who lived in the apartment next door to his brother's home, heard odd moaning sounds coming through the wall and realized his brother and sister-in-law were dead. I don't know how you realize that from the moaning. From moaning? From mob shit, bro. Also, here, death moans are very distinctly different from sex mm. ones. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's... There's a difference... Nah, never mind. Yep. <laughs> I was going to do a little voice acting there, but I decided not to. Yeah, yeah. you made a good decision. <laughs> So police were taken aback that Maggio was not aware of the intruder's forced entry into the home, even though he had returned home from a night of celebration before leaving to join the Navy. Maggio yeah, that's what I was going to say is like, you said that this man used a chisel to remove door panels. That's a loud thing. Yeah, that happens. But then you immediately said returned home from a night of celebration after before deploying, essentially. Right. right? Yes. So like. That sounds like alcohol was involved, and alcohol can make you sleep through crazy shit. Yeah, and it can make you have sex in the back of a police car. Apparently. So, uh -huh. I don't even need alcohol to sleep through crazy shit, man. It's when I know that there's a hurricane coming through, and I'm pretty sure it's going to knock the power out. I wait for it to start, take a couple melatonin, I will sleep through that hurricane so I don't have to be awake while the power's out. Yep. Same <laughs> here. So Maggio attributed... That's a solid strat. <laughs> So Maggio attributed his lack of hearing any noises connected to the attacks that had taken place in the early morning hours to his intoxication. Now, Andrew Maggio sprang to prominence as the chief of police's top suspect in the killings, but he was freed when detectives were unable to corroborate his testimony and his description of an unidentified man who was allegedly spotted prowling the area before the killings. Joseph Maggio's wife was Catherine Maggio. I, I don't know why I did that. I have to apologize right now because every time you say Joseph Maggio, you think about Joe DiMaggio. All I can think about is cuckoo, cuckoo, <laughs> Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> That's all I got, man. Now, Catherine you started Ma too extreme. I don't have jokes now. Like, 
So Catherine Maggio was head was almost detached from her shoulders due to the deep incision on her throat. In contrast to Joseph. I almost joshed myself earlier because I was going to say it's actually way easier to like cut a throat effectively than you think it should be. Yeah. It's it's like way easier to decapitate people. It's like, yeah. Yeah. There was the week that I think you were visiting your parents or something, Ruben, and Josh and I, it was during the satanic panic, and Josh and I did the um, the Greyhound Cannibal story. Mm. And mm. between the two of us, we were trying to figure, because the guy, the Vince Lee or whatever his name was, cut the head off of the the person he killed with just a knife, and we were trying to figure out how hard that would be, and we actually had a listener message us who was a butcher, I think telling us how it's yeah quite easy to cut through yeah. the neck but yeah i mean it's like seven pieces that are fucking loosely connected like it's it's not it, yeah it's, it's the hardest spine. part is the spine and right. that's still there's cartilage in between there yeah you know what i'm saying there's yep. like a good little bit of leeway and like that's why spinal injuries are so common like it's yeah. kind of fragile yep it's it's rough, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So her head was almost detached from the shoulders. In contrast to Joseph, Catherine perished before her husband's brothers could locate them and did not live through the attack for very long. The murderer scrawled, Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony on the neighboring sidewalk, which is thought to be a reference. That's to- mob shit. <laughs> that is mob shit. <laughs> which is thought to be a reference to Anthony and Joanna Siambra, uh, the Italian greengrocers who were assaulted with an axe in 1911, which led to Mrs. Siambia's or Siambra's death. Customers reportedly referred to Joanna Siambra or Siambra as Mrs. Tony. So on June 27th, 1918, so this is a uh, little less than no, like a week later, not even a week. Yeah. Uh, Early in the morning, Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the back sections of his grocery store, which was situated at the intersection of Dorgenoy and La Harp Streets. Um, Where where are we in in the country? We're in New Orleans. New New Orleans. Yeah. So Dorgenoy is probably a French name that I can't pronounce because I'm not French. Mm. So pardon my French. (laughs) Bessemer may... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Bessemer may have suffered a fracture to his skull after being struck by a hatchet above his right temple. When officers got to the scene, they discovered Lowe unconscious with a cut above his left ear. On the morning of the attack, John Zanka, the driver of a bakery wagon who had stopped by the grocery store to make an unusual delivery, found the couple just about se- uh, right around seven in the morning. Zanka discovered Bessemer and Lowe bleeding profusely from their heads in a puddle of their own blood. The apartment's bathroom contained the axe, which had belonged to Bessemer personally. Bessemer then told authorities that he was asleep when the hatchet hit him. Louis Ubicon, a 41-year-old African-American man who had worked at Bessemer's store for just one week before the attacks, was detained by police almost immediately. Can't wonder why. What? Yeah. I wonder how that <laughs> came to that conclusion. A so black fast. man in Louisiana. Hmm. In 1918? What? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, despite the lack of evidence that may have established the man's guilt, Ubicon uh, was arrested by the police on the grounds that he had provided inconsistent answers on his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Lowe claimed shortly after the attempted murder that she had been attacked by a mulatto man, but authorities disregarded her claims because of her dejected mood. <laughs> yeah, she- her dejected mood yeah she seemed a little down so fuck what she had to say now no cash or valuables were taken from the couple's house despite the fact that the robbery was stated or yeah that robbery was stated to be the only plausible cause for the attacks after authorities could not compile enough evidence to convict ubicon of the crimes he was eventually freed now after a trunk at bessemer's house revealed a number of letters written in german russian and yiddish media focus quickly shifted to the man himself Bessemer's suspected German spy status 
led to a thorough inquiry into his possible espionage by government officials and police. Following several weeks of intermittent unconsciousness, Harriet Lowe reported to the authorities that she believed Bessemer to be a German spy, resulting in his prompt apprehension. He was uh, free. What? I just like 1918 German spy. It makes sense. Yeah. Because uh-huh. that was like either right after or during World War One, wasn't it? It was right after, I yeah, think. I think World War One ended in 17. So I think. We we looked it up for Ed Gein, but I yeah, don't remember. I don't either. I'm not good with not, like dates. Just slip out of there, baby. Um, let's see. So Bessemer was freed two days later, and two of the case's primary investigators received a demotion as a result of their subpar police work. Yeah, it ended November 11, 1918, for us. Okay, so this was still daring. In August on. In August of 1918, Bessemer was arrested again after Harriet Lowe, who was dying at Charity Hospital following an unsuccessful surgery, said that he had attacked her with his hatchet more than a month earlier. After being accused of murder, he was sentenced to nine months in prison. And on May 1st, 1919, the jury deliberated for 10 minutes before finding him not guilty. When Harriet Lowe was in bed with Louis Bessemer, she was attacked. As previously stated, Lowe was found unconscious at the scene of the incident and had sustained a cut above her left ear before being taken to Charity Hospital. So as a result of her repeated scandalous and frequently untrue claims about the attacks and Louis Bessemer's persona, some of which are detailed in the previous section, Lowe found herself at the center of a media circus. When the Times-Picayune learned that Lowe was Bessemer's mistress rather than his wife, it sensationalized Lowe and her outspoken personality. The scandal was uncovered oh. by a charity hospital insider when Bessemer requested to be sent to the room of Mrs. Harriet Lowe, only to be told that no woman from with that name was a patient. Days after finding out, Bessemer's legal wife arrived from Cincinnati, escalating the already intense tension. This poor guy can't yeah, catch a break. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, literally not for a second. Lowe continued to attract media attention after making a number of remarks expressing her disapproval of the New Orleans chief of police and her unwillingness to cooperate with interrogations by the police. Again, further leading me to believe. Sorry. Ugh. Further leading me to believe mob shit. Who, who, who could it be that could intimidate a whole community of people into not speaking to the police? Uh-huh. Hmm. So following the public disclosure of her marital status, Lowe notified Times-Picayune reporters that she would no longer assist the police with their investigation since she believed that Chief Mooney had been the one to initially alert the media to the problem. Weeks after the incident, despite the controversy and her delirious claims that Bessemer was a German spy, Lowe went back to the house that she shared with Bessemer. The attack was so severe that it largely immobilized one side of her face. Oof. Two days, yeah. Two days after surgeons attempted surgery to restore Lowe's partially paralyzed face, she passed away on August fifth, nineteen eighteen. Lowe informed prof- officials just before she passed away that she thought that Bessemer was the one who had harmed her. Which one and is Bessemer pro- again? He, he was, was the, the her. No, go ahead, Don. She was his mistress. She was. He was the one that was attacked with her. Got it. Neither Sorry, one of them you know were killed. I had names just I know. go in and out for yeah. Yeah. sometimes. Well, there's a lot of names and stories like this. Yeah. So this brings us to our next victims. On the August 5th of 1918, early in the evening, Anna Schneider was attacked. The 28-year-old Elmira Street woman, who was eight months pregnant, was repeatedly struck oh. in the face by a dark figure when she awoke. Her face was entirely Jesus. covered in yeah. Her face was entirely covered in blood, and her scalp was sliced open. Ed Schneider, yeah. Ed Schneider, Mrs. Schneider's husband, found her around midnight when arriving home from work late. Schneider stated that she had no memory of the attack and that two days later, and two days later, she gave birth to a healthy daughter. Other than the sick. Luckily, I'm for real. Like, yeah, that's that's brutal. 
So other than the six or seven dollars that were in his wallet, her spouse reported to the police that nothing was taken from the house. Authorities concluded that the woman was most likely hit with a lamp that had been on the nearby table because the apartment's windows and doors did not appear to have been forced open. Soon after Schneider was located, James Gleason, uh, whom the authorities claimed to be an ex-convict, was taken into custody. After being freed for what for want of any proof, Gleason claimed that he had fled from the police since he had been arrested so frequently. Lead detectives stated that public conjectures about the connection between the attack and the earlier Bessemer and Maggio, or I'm sorry, lead detectives started making public conjectures about the connection between the attack and the early Bessemer and Maggio occurrences. Okay. Then on, so they're then like, on, this on, might be connected. Yeah. So then um, on August 10th, Pauline and Mary Bruno, Joseph Romano's two nieces, lived uh, with, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Try this again. Pauline and Mary woke up on August 10th, 1918, to the sound of a disturbance in the room next door where their uncle lived. Uh, their uncle's Joseph Romano. The sisters entered the room to find their uncle suffering from two open cuts after a violent punch to the head. When they got there, the attacker was already leaving, but the girls could still make out that he was a heavy-set, dark-skinned man with a slouched hat and dark suit. Now, despite his horrific injuries, Romano managed to walk to the ambulance when it arrived. However, he passed away two days later from a severe brain injury. Damn. The house had been broken into, but Romano had not lost anything. Authorities discovered a bloody axe in the backyard. Other than his life. Yeah, but that's not really that important. I mean, well. I mean, this is America. Money above all things. This is America. Oh, yeah, he's right. He's right, you all. Don't get you slipping up. Yeah. Look what I'm whipping up. Look what I'm whipping up. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) So when they... uh, Authorities discovered a bloody axe in the backyard along with the chiseled away panel from the back door. The city was in complete disarray following the Romano murder, and people were constantly afraid of an Axeman attack. Numerous allegations were made to the police by people who said that they had spotted an Axeman hiding in the neighborhoods of New Orleans. They spotted an Axeman hiding in the neighborhoods of New Orleans. I fucking love that sentence so much. (laughs) I... I also do like that sentence. The thing that has caught me up, though, is... No, you didn't, because he's using your axes. Yeah. Right. Just, uh, it's, is it's, your axe still in the fucking garage? This is not a bring-your-own-axe situation. <laughs> it's in the shed, ain't it? Then just, you're fine. Calm down. Put it in the no, bedroom. Like, they just saw somebody cutting weird. a tree down. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's weird because it it strikes as like an opportunity attack, but it's also so consistent. Yeah. Right. Which makes it really weird. Like cuz at, at first glance, like the first time you would think, "Oh, he used their own axe to do it. He probably broke in, saw their axe, figured this works." But then when there's a string of them, yeah, all done. That's like his M.O. It's different. It's to take their axe and kill them with it. Right. Which, again, feels like some weird symbolic mob thing to me, but I think I'm a little too hung up on the mob thing. Maybe a little. <laughs> Just a tiny bit. Although it is suspiciously mob-like. It is. <laughs> This podcast is powered by Podbean Podcast Hosting. Are you thinking about starting your own podcast or looking for the best home for your podcast? Check out all the amazing features Podbean offers with unlimited bandwidth and storage for an affordable price. That's right, unlimited. Visit www.podbean.com slash unlimited to check it out today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash unlimited. So, in public remarks at the time, retired Italian investigator John D'Antonio conjectured that the Axeman uh, murderer may have been the same person who killed other people in 1911. The former investigator claimed that there were parallels between the two sets of killings, supporting the theory that the same person was responsible for both. 
Now, according to D'Antonio, the possible murderer was a multi-personality who killed without apparent reason. According to D'Antonio, this kind of person might have been an ordinary law-abiding citizen who was frequently overpowered by the strong desire to kill. He proceeded to characterize That's... the murder. Um, That's the whitest shit I've ever heard. Uh, somehow I did just confirm uh, that thing that I read earlier I'll just read the first thing that comes up on uh, Google here Uh, the American La Casa Nostra evolved from the Sicilian mafia organization that first surfaced in that first surfaced in New Orleans in the 1800s and later in New York in the 1920s well there you go so the mob did in fact get its start in America in New Orleans yeah. Well, there um, you go. That makes sense yeah. somehow. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> it's a vibe, though. Yeah. But he conceded to, or he proceeded to characterize the murderer as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from actual life. That's now, not living... how anything really works, <laughs> though, is the thing. We've spent two years exploring that very yeah. thing. <laughs> So living across the Mississippi River in Gretna, Louisiana, on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street, was Italian immigrant Charles Cortamiglia, his wife Rosie, and their little daughter Mary. Now, screams were heard coming from Cortamiglia's residence on the evening of March 10th, 1919. Orlando Giordano, uh, the grocery store owner, hurried over to look into it. When Giordano arrived, he saw that the unidentified intruder had attacked Charles Cortamiglia, his wife, and their daughter. With a deep cut on her head, Rosie stood in the doorway holding her dead daughter. Charles was bleeding oh heavily. As he... Jesus Christ. Charles was bleeding heavily. Sorry, as every he time you say ground. some shit like that, it really fucks my brain up a little. Because like I'm, I, I immediately picture it, and it's very right. sad and right. heartbreaking. It's awful. So after being taken to Charity Hospital in critical condition, the couple's skulls were found found to be fractured. The house was empty, but a bloody axe was discovered on the back porch, and once again, a panel on the back door had been chipped away. Two days later, Charles was freed, but his wife was still under the care of medical professionals. When Rosie came to, she said that Orlando Giordano and his 18-year-old son Frank were the ones who carried out the attacks. The 69-year-old Orlando was in too bad of health to have carried out the atrocities. Frank Giordano was too big to have fit through the back door's panel, being over six feet tall and weighing more than uh, more than 200 pounds. Despite Charles Cortamiglia's, so you'd be surprised at where people like me can fit. <laughs> uh, despite know. Charles Cortamiglia's strong denial of his wife's like allegations. <laughs> Police detained. Police detained. If they can get their head through. I was going to say, as long as my skull can fit. (laughs) So, yeah. So, police detained both of them and accused them of murder. Now, later on, the men would be judged guilty. Frank received a hanging sentence and his father was given a life term. Following the trial, Charles Cordomiglia divorced his wife. Rosie revealed over a year later that she had falsely accused the two out of spite and envy. Since her testimony constituted the only available proof against the Giordanos, they were soon allowed to leave custody. Charles Cordomiglia, an immigrant laborer, was married to Rosie... Hold on. I'm sorry. I repeated myself here. Hold on. So on August 10th, 1919, a burglar with an axe attacked grocery store owner Steve Boca while he was asleep in his bedroom. One night, Boca woke up to see a shadowy apparition hovering over his bed. When Boca came to, he discovered that his head was broken open and went to investigate the intrusion by running to the street. The grocer fled to his neighbor Frank Jinsua's house, where he passed out and fell uh, fell on the ground. Now, even though nothing had been removed from his house, yet again, a panel on the back entrance had been chiseled away once more. After his wounds healed, Boca was unable to recall any specifics of the ordeal. I now, would a- almost, I would be willing to dismiss a lot of this as coincidence. Yeah, I was just thinking Ev- that same thing. Every, yeah, as I've been thinking of it for the, like, the last two murders. Yeah. It's, it's very convenient that an axe is in every home. 
during right. this time. Period. I have a fucking axe. Right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like, exactly. I I think even today, most people have own an, an axe or a hatchet. Yeah. For something. some reason or another. <laughs> it's just one of those tools that you end up acquiring in your adult life. Yeah. You just they and come out from somewhere. You don't know. Back then you needed it in the winter. Yeah. You needed firewood. Ain't no central heat in nineteen eighteen. You need it year round to cook and shit. Like. Yeah. Right. So it would be easy enough to say, oh, yeah, there's a lot of murders happening in this town. And they just so happen to all be being done with an axe because axes are a very convenient murder weapon. Yeah. They're usually out in plain sight because they get used often. They're usually by an entrance They're because in a you take them outside. Location. Yes, exactly. Yep. So. Yeah, if somebody's planning a crime of passion, they're like, I'm going to break in, and yeah. they just grab the axe. Yeah. But it's or like also... if you're burgling a grocery store uh-huh. in 1910, yes. you're like, oh shit, I need something to threaten or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. But then there's the fact that every single door frame is also- Like chiseled. Chiseled. A panel yeah. has been removed. That is- and like... That, along with there also being an axe involved in every murder, makes it... So, the chisel being brought makes it premeditated. The fact that every single one of them wakes up with this guy above them... Right. That's a... I Listen, I don't know if you know what modus operandi means, audience, but that's what that means. It <laughs> means, how did they... How do they continuously commit this crime this act of murder and it's very often almost every time with a serial killer it's very specific things you know like maybe some of them will axe you and then cover you with a sheet maybe some of them will take a piece of your body to try to make a fucking zombie uh maybe they stop you on the road and ask for help you know fuck ted bundy but like that's what I'm saying though is like it's there's always like a pattern and this is too strong of one yeah to just be six different guys who just needed you know per- right picked up an axe like and it's so it's like for me the only question is is this just a serial killer for fun oh good that's that's an adorable Cthulhu we love he's him. very cute. Thank you for sharing that, Don. <laughs> the, the question for me that remains is, is it a serial killer that's attacking based on race, or is it actually mob-related? Right. Because, like, I was also thinking this earlier. If it's different, like, let's assume some of the people are giving the correct description. Yeah. None of the descriptions have been close enough that they have to be the same guy. Like a shadowy figure standing above me in the dark is a hundred percent of people Mm -hmm. like, but you know, some of them have said it's been a black dude. Some of them have said it's been like a neighbor or a white guy. And like, that to me feels even more mob because if the mob is employing different hitmen, maybe even they have two dudes and one of them's like, he'll rough you up real bad and you might die, but the other one is fully going to murder you type shit. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's so like with one of them being a black guy, I would think, okay, well, New Orleans has always been historically black. And if there were, yeah. if there was like a huge surgeons in Italian immigrants, there might be some really bad racial sentiment in That's the true. area. And that, that could lead to this. And that would explain the targeting of Italians. But then it's, it's only really that one that was described as a black man. Yeah. Everybody else is like a shadowy figure or a dark figure. So the, the other line of thinking that I have is if it is mob related, the neighborhood knows that it's mob related. Oh, the streets yeah. know. The streets always know. But when it's mob related, you're not going to fucking tell the police the truth. No, hell no. 
if you go to them at all. Yeah, because you don't know how many cops are in the mob. Right. <laughs> and so it would also make sense to me that one of them was like, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, 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 a black guy. It was a black guy that did it. Yeah. To, in order to not say, ah, oh, yes, it was uh, this family who has heavy ties to the mob, mm-hmm. who we borrowed money from. Or who we refused to pay the protection money to or right, something. because that was still a big racket back then, literally racketeering. Yeah, well. But it's not so much any, anymore. Listen, nobody says you can't racketeer. I'm pretty sure. I think it's there's laws against upon. that. What? There's like a whole thing. It's called Rico. Man. <laughs> Oh, okay. Man. All right, then oh, well. then we need to drop the charges on Donald Trump for Rico. So Oh, shut the fuck shut up. Shut up. <laughs> All right. I'll, so I'll start in- calling you Donald again, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's bad enough. I told them when I started my new job, calling me Don, and they made a name tag that says Donald. No. <laughs> Tell them yes. to go fuck themselves. Like <laughs> scratch it out. Get some white out. Put some stars on it, like you're a preschool teacher. <laughs> So on September 3rd, 1919, Sarah Lauman was attacked in the evening. After living alone, the young woman's neighbors came to see how she was doing and broke into the house when Lauman did not respond. They found the 19-year-old comatose in her bed with multiple missing teeth and a serious head injury. Through an open Oh my god. Through an open window, the burglar gained entry to the residence and used a blunt item to strike the victim. On the building's front yard, once again, there was a bloody axe. Even when Lauman's injuries healed, she was unable to remember anything about the attack. That's yeah, I, I wonder if like head if, trauma will do that shit to you. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a certain spot that this person knew where to hit that does that. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm I I understand that I'm stuck on the mob thing, but <laughs> memory memory loss is very common when it comes to the mob. Hmm. <laughs> So, (laughs) October 27th, 1919, Mike Pepitone was attacked during the evening. A loud noise startled his wife, and when she reached his bedroom door, she reached his bedroom door just in time to see a large man with an axe running from the scene. Mike Pepitone was drenched in his own blood after taking a blow to the head. Now, most of the room was splattered with blood, including a portrait of the Virgin Mary. Mrs. Pepitone, the mother of six children, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer, and the Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. Now, crime writer Colin Wilson theorizes that the Axeman might have been Joseph Monfrey, a man who was shot and killed in Los Angeles in December 1920 by Mike Pepitone's widow, the last known victim of the Axeman. There are other instances of Wilson's theory in other true crime publications and online. True crime author Michael Newton, however, looked through newspaper archives, public and police records, uh, public public police and court records um, in both New Orleans and Los Angeles, but was unable to locate any proof that a guy named Joseph Monfrey or a name similar to that had ever been murdered or assaulted in the city. Now, Newton could also also could not locate any evidence that Mrs. Pepitone referred to as Esther Albano in some sources and just as a woman who claimed to be Pepitone's widow and others had ever even been to California, uh, let alone that she had been detained, tried or found guilty of such a crime. Newton points out Mm. that this time at the time of the crimes, Mumfrey was a common surname in New Orleans. There seems to have been a Joseph Mumfrey or Mumfrey in New Orleans around who had at the, who had a criminal record and may have been associated with organized crime, but there aren't enough details, uh, detailed local records available for that time period to confirm this or positively identify the person. Wilson's explanation is an urban legend and the evidence regarding the killer's identity is as thin today as it was when the atrocities were committed. So <clears throat> early in May, Early on May 16th, 1912, so we're backing up a little bit, an intruder Uh shot two of the supposed early victims of the Axeman, an Italian couple named Chiambra, which we discussed, in the lower Ninth Ward house. 
While his wife passed away, the male Chiambra lived. The chief suspect of that crime was called Mumfrey on multiple occasions in newspapers. The Chiambras might have been the first victims of the future serial killer Joseph Mumfrey, even if his methods were drastically different from the Axeman's customary ones. So scholar Richard Warner claims that Frank Doc Mumfrey, who went by the nickname Leon Joseph Mumfrey, was the main suspect of the crimes. Now, many in the community noticed that Mr. Mumfrey's once struggling Garden District jazz business seemed to be doing remarkably well once the city was forced to hire jazz bands and play jazz recordings due to the threat of violence, which brings us back to the theory that the killings was to promote jazz music. On Sunday, yeah, March 16th... I don't super buy that one, though. Well, hold on. So, well... Uh, a if letter you would published have said by the blues. Do what? I said if you would have said blues, maybe, but <laughs> jazz. Well, come on now. No, New Orleans. Jazz New Orleans was like in the 1912s. That was like that's where jazz started. Yeah. No, yeah, that's yeah, that's the that was the joke, Don. Oh, I'm the, sorry. I didn't realize you were making a joke. I can't see you, so sorry. I'm sorry. So, you know. Oh yeah, I forgot. You can't see the chat anymore either. Oh man. A letter published by the Times-Picayune on Sunday, March 16, 1919, around a week after a the attack on the Cordomiglia family, um, was published. Yeah, yeah. A letter was published by the Times-Picayune that read as follows. Hell, March 13, 1919. Editor of the Times-Picayune, New Orleans. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from hottest hell. I am what you, you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. Do you, you know what this sounds like to me? A hoax? It specifically, it sounds like a 16-year-old on 4chan. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It sounds like a I was I was gonna say like like if Damien Eccles went way too hard. Yeah. Fireworks. Oh yeah. New wow. Order. New Year's. <clears throat> uh, it sounds like if 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 a kid that was like Damien Eccles was going way the fuck too hard, and <laughs> sent this to be edgy. It's, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's like it feels like. What we would now call an incel. Uh-huh. Because it, it, he also says my bloody axe. No, it's their bloody axe. <laughs> it's the it's theirs. They had it already. Yeah, very specifically. So if you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way in which they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid so as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph. This is the type of autistic shit that, like, <laughs> abused kids would write. Like, for real. Like, the kind where you should be writing fan fiction, but your parents never let you read Harry Potter. <laughs> yep, that's nail on the head. I mean... Like, <laughs> but tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than for them to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel, I feel sure that your police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most humble or most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, if I wished to, I could pay a visit to your city every night, and I, 
At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to Such be exact, a shame that metal music wasn't invented yet, so Hunter here <laughs> could have got a good outlet. Like, damn. <laughs> now, to be exact, at 12.15 o'clock, earthly time, on the next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to the people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils Jesus in the nether Christ. regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, well then, so much the better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is some of those persons who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crazy. Those who do not jazz it? Yes. Those who do not jazz it will get the axe is my new favorite catchphrase. That's going to be my new fucking bio on every dating app. Are you kidding me? Well, as I am Holy cold. shit. As I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tataris, and as it is about that time, uh, about time that I have left your homely earth, I will cease my discourse hoping that thou will publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, and am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed, either in fact or the realm of fancy, signed the Axeman. So, on the night of March 18th, 1919, jazz drifted into the wet, gloomy air from homes and bars throughout New Orleans and its suburbs late into the night and early the next morning. Typically, this kind of musical explosion is and was a result of festivities. Nevertheless, on this specific spring evening, the noise pretended something far darker. Jazz music was being played by New Orleanians who were afraid for their lives. New Orleanian, New Orleanian residents uh, were desperate to do everything within their limited power to protect their families from a real-life boogeyman. Now, historians and criminal profiles who have closely examined the, the letter believe the chances of the real Axeman writing it are extremely low, despite its frightening effects. It does uh, not have frightening effects. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> it did in 20, or 1918, or whatever it was. Now, the author of the book, The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, uh, historian Miriam Davis, claims that the writer and the perpetrator do not share the same characteristics. When you read the letter, this is a person who is an educated person. He has a classical allusion to Tartarus, which is a place of torment in Greek mythology. Davis wrote the book primarily to dispel much of the realm of fancy surrounding the Axeman. It seems as though a fraternity or some uh, a, uh, a frat boy or something or else or someone else wrote it. According to the description we have of him, the Axeman is a working class man who is a work. Yeah. Furthermore. I do not believe that a working class person at the time would have had the education necessary to compose that letter. Well, hell, if it was a frat man, I read that in the wrong voice the entire time. <laughs> nah, you got it perfect. You did it right. It's the immortal. They never caught me and they never will. But, nah, um, you had the right tone of voice because you it <laughs> sounded like self that self-satisfied... Oh, I just did it, but they didn't. Right. Voice, that was good. So this begs the obvious question. Who else had a reason if the Axeman himself did not write that letter to the Times-Picayune? According to Davis's theory, Joseph John Davila, or Davila is the most likely offender. The song, The Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me, Papa, was allegedly written by Davila, a jazz musician from New Orleans in the early days of the genre, in the wee hours of March 19, 1919. The Times-Picayune stated on March 20th that he admits that he finished the composition at about 2 a.m. on Wednesday after he was sure the Axeman had no designs on him personally. The cartoon that the Times-Picayune had published in March 19th, a family hurriedly playing jazz music while fearfully peering out the door, was featured on the cover of the sheet music. So there's a dude who wrote a song the day or two days before that letter was printed, and it was called "Don't or The Axeman's Jazz, Don't Kill Me, Papa, or Don't Scare Me, Papa. Oh, my. 
That's the name of the song? The name of the song is The Axeman's Jazz. And you can actually go on Spotify. It's on Spotify. You can listen to it. The Axeman's Jazz. That sounds like some shit that Jack Black would write. (laughs) (gasps) The Scatman's Axe. (laughs) 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 So when Davis discussed the letter with a criminal profile from the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and a contemporary homicide detective... They both informed her that, no, no, the actual serial killer did not write that. The criminal profiler said, I bet he did it. After she told him about how Davila had created excitement for the publication of the Axeman's Jazz by having newspaper ads play on the letter. So the residents of New Orleans obviously decided it was better to be safe than sorry when it came to the warning in the letter, regardless of who authored it. The day after the terrifying jazz night, the Times-Picayune published an article under the headline, Jazz Bands Blair for Axeman Who Stays Away from City, Threat of Mysterious Writers of Note Who Claim to be Murderer Gives Splendid Excuse for Merrymaking. The article I was going to say, this sounds like the coolest excuse ever to start a jazz festival. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was also thinking, like, no, the serial killer definitely wasn't promoting jazz, but the guy who wrote the letter absolutely was either... Doing the weirdest jazz promotional ever, or he was trying to scare people back into, like, he was trying to scare them so much that it flipped the other way. Right. Like, he wanted to uh, redirect the fear. Like, if you guys don't start having fun, the Axeman will come for you. There's a boogeyman. Like, you have to go out Tuesday night, 6 p.m., jazz club on fucking 6th and 12th, or whatever, 6th and 8th, I don't know. When, when we move to when we move to Illinois, we're going to have to, like, wait for there to be a bunch of murders, and then write an anonymous letter ab- about how the murders will stop if, uh, if everyone... Listens to our podcast. H- ...hits up dudes from Florida to go on dates. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Or really, just do something bizarre, like everybody has to be listening to Chocolate Rain. Oh my God! Yeah, you oh you open your window at the at the aforementioned time, and you you just (laughs) distantly from every direction. All right, uh, let me finish. We're almost done here. So that article continued, many Orleanians took the Axeman's letter, which was published in the Times-Picayune on Sunday, seriously, as evidenced by the tinkle of jazz music emanating from dozens of New Orleans homes at 12.15 a.m. on Wednesday morning. Countless others, on the other hand, found inspiration for house parties with jazz music playing prominently on the program. In an editorial published on March 20th, the West Bank Herald, local Algiers newspaper at the time, uh, agreed with Davis that the real perpetrator could not have been authored, could not have authored the letter, and criticized the Times Picayune for carelessly inciting panic to its readers. I mean, uh, yeah, stating that the le- writer of this letter is clearly intelligent above his years, and it's clear that the letter was intended more as a joke than anything else. We even it's think someone like it, it. It has the opposite effect of uh, the letter that got sent out to all the McMartin parents. Right. Oh no! Yeah, so it's that letter got sent out and it incited panic, and we ended up <laughs> indicting people for being pedophiles and yeah. sat- Satan worshippers when there was there was no uh, nothing happening at all. But this letter went out and incited panic. It's the opposite here, where this letter went out and incited so much panic that everybody partied. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they used fear like Batman to solve the problem. Right. Yep. Uh, the new Batman movie kicks ass, by the way. With, the one uh, with Robert, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. It was really good. Yeah, yeah it was good. It. it was really good. I suppose I shall have to check it out. Yeah. So the letter certainly made for exciting Sunday reading for those who enjoy sensational stories, but we also need to consider the immense harm it has caused to the ignorant and superstitious classes who somewhat believed that this Axeman would visit certain families that did not have a jazz band. The public, ah. would have benefited, 
The public would have benefited. Look, it's not my fault if I say something ridiculous and you believe me. <laughs> uh, oh, but it is the paper's fault when they're a, a when they report on it. Publication, yes, yeah. So the public would huh, have benefited. It's weird. We've just described the news's relationship with Twitter. Oh shit. <laughs> So the public would have benefited much more from the Times-Picayune if it had spent the same amount of space trying to find the individual who was killing people than from the joke letters publication, uh, which greatly alarmed and unsettled the naive classes. The Times-Picayune was so happy with this scoop that it boasted about it on Wednesday morning, printing a cartoon featuring one of the numerous terrified families with their mother pathetically attempting to calm the kids by playing jazz music as instructed by the Axeman. We don't get the joke. The bigger question, which still stands underlying all of the editorial teasing regarding the identity of the now famous letter writer, is who was the Axeman? Regretfully, that enigma is still unresolved, despite a plethora of explanations that range in credibility. And that takes us out of the script. We know where Josh- I don't actually have a whole shit ton of afterthoughts on this one. It was the mob. Yeah, it was the mob. <laughs> and- um. Just because you don't get the joke does not mean that the person who said the joke should get in trouble. Uh, That's all. We're not talking about, like, jokes that are actually hate speech or inciting violence. That is not a joke. That's different. If If somebody said a joke and you didn't get the joke and you get mad about it, that's on you. If somebody said something terrible and you get mad about it, that's on them. If a fucking newspaper puts a Twitter headline in the goddamn newspaper article and you believe it, that's on the newspaper. I hope this clears things up. (laughs) So, um, welcome to the new year. Let's hope 2024 doesn't completely fucking go down in a burning fucking yeah, festering f- fireworks already make it sound like it's going down burning <laughs> out there like uh-huh yeah there's no fireworks a, out here we still got five hours until <laughs> midnight and i the explosions have not stopped the rockets red glare and shit oh it'll be what's today sunday night yeah it'll be thursday before they stop <laughs> So if you are a patron um, who gets the bonus material, uh, I did drop my riff tracks of Feeders 2 on Christmas Day. Hey, ye. Or, yeah. Um, So please go listen to it and let me know what you think, because it was really weird uh, watching a movie and talking to myself. But... um, Hopefully, once the boys move up here, we'll figure out a way to do more than just me. Um, and I think I think that's it. Uh, go follow us on TikTok because TikTok has weird things. You got to have a thousand followers before you can do anything fun. Um, so um, I'd like to do lives where we can actually interact with people because I'm not getting on Twitch. That's Ruben and Josh's thing. I'm too old for Twitch. Um, and I already feel weird enough telling people that I have a podcast and I'm on TikTok. I'm almost 50 years old. <laughs> so, um, and also, if you haven't already, go to Podbean, uh, twotownsover.podbean.com and follow us there. Again, nothing else happens. All you do is just get a notification when our episodes drop. But um, trying to get that following built up because I really still don't know how Podbean's uh, algorithms work, even after two years. Um, we have a Patreon if you if you want any little bit helps. We have multiple tiers starting at two dollars all the way to twenty, and any help is appreciated. It all goes right back into the show. If um. I think that's it. Do you guys have anything to say? Fucking like, comment, subscribe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if you can, go to it's, Apple. It's all in the thing at the beginning. Yeah, I guess it is. And all the links yeah, will get, be in the know, descriptions. This is uh, 
for us, this is the last day of the new year, as yep. I'm sure we've said before in this episode. So, uh, you know, we made it. Well, yeah, we you, did this on the midweek, which will come out before this. You made it, yeah. too. So, like... Pat yourselves on the back. Vibe harder this year. You know, if 2024 comes with that bullshit, all you got to do is grab its axe. <laughs> <laughs> it has one, for sure. It has it's one. by the Definitely. door. Chisel, chisel its back door open. And then <laughs> go to town. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But do it jazzily. It, Jazz. Unless 2024 is like a big year for jazz, and then you yeah, can't yeah. do if this. Yeah, yeah. If it's a huge year for jazz, you can't. You can't. That's the stipulation. The spirit of the axe won't let you or something. Yes. All right, everybody. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it, and we will see you next time. Bye. Later. Bye.